We are in Isaiah chapter 36 this morning, so if you would please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. If you don't have one, we've got all kinds stacked around everywhere. Isaiah 36. And we will be, uh, before we get into our text, really laying a groundwork for the context of our text this morning. Because if you've been with us, and I know that some of you have not, but if you've been with us through the book of Isaiah, we have come from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through all the verses and all the chapters, and we have arrived this morning at Isaiah chapter 36. And so I'd like to lay just a quick, a brief groundwork of where we've come from in Isaiah, not really covering everything, but grand themes. So we have, uh, as we introduce this book, we have one passage that comes to mind, or one verse, that really can be a summary for this text, and it is Isaiah 12.2. Isaiah 12.2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Now again, that's Isaiah 12.2. If we were to summarize the theme of the book of Isaiah, the grand message, the one thing that you need to walk away from is God is my salvation. Now you might think that's a pretty basic concept to say God is my salvation, but that is the entire theme of the book of Isaiah. And over and over and over again, the people of Judah, in particular the southern kingdom, are presented with reasons to not have or not trust in God as their salvation. And I can only imagine this morning that some of us in this room come with reasons to not trust in God for their salvation. Is that true? I think it is true. We come with so many reasons, and they are ever-changing, aren't they? The things that would steal away our affections for Christ. Another thing about the book of Isaiah is that it can be divided. It can be divided into two different sections. Just like our Bible... It has 66 chapters, and our Bible has 66 books, but it can be divided just like our Old Testament and New Testament, whereas the first 39 chapters would be our Old Testament, but here they concentrate on conflict and judgment, and most, uh, in most particular, the conflict and judgment comes from the Assyrians. And then in uh, chapters 40 through 66, it kind of changes, and the, and the theme really is more on hope and restoration, but that's in a different period. There's a different threat over their lives now, and that's the Babylonians. So there's really two different periods. There's the Assyrian period, and there's the Babylonian period. If you don't get that much, uh, the book of Isaiah really doesn't make much sense at all, but there are two major threats. The first threat, the first major power of the Assyrians, and they want to just take over everybody. Second is the Babylonians. They want to take over everybody too, and uh, they even take over the Assyrians. So uh, this, this, is our, uh, this is our people that we're concerned with, the Assyrians, and so there were several kings of Assyria of, of interest to us. From the year 745 all the way to 681, remember when we're talking BC, the years count in reverse. So 745 is earlier than 681. But in 745 through 681, we have really four kings of the Assyrians. First is Tiglath Pileser III, then there's Shalmaneser V, and then there's Sargon II, which we don't hear a whole lot about, and then Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib is the king of the Assyrians right now, in this moment, as we're in Isaiah chapter 36. Okay, so kings have come before him, and they have done certain things. And I just want to show you a map here of what the kings have done so far. If you look in the purple, the purple is what the first king that we're talking about, Tiglath-Pileser III in 745 to 727, Tiglath-Pileser took his kingdom and expanded all throughout that purple area. So he led great victories and great battles, and he won. And then Shalmaneser V and Sargon II take over that green area. Now they expanded the kingdom even farther, didn't they? And then you have Sennacherib. And if you can even see it, there's a little tiny brown area at the very the south kind of west of the map here. You see that little brown section? That is where Jerusalem is. And this is where the kingdom of Judah lives. You'll notice that in the green that Samaria, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, has been engulfed at this point. And they've been taken by the Assyrians. All right, That was done by Shalmaneser. It took three years for them to, to take the northern kingdom, but they did it. And so now Judah is left. And the Assyrians are spreading throughout the known and significant world, and they are creeping ever towards them. And you can see that green area. They have conquered all the kingdoms all the way up until them. And so now all that's left is this little tiny section in the south. All they need to do is destroy this section, and they'll have everything, and they'll continue down even to Egypt. 
But here's what I want to say before we continue on. And again, this is just setting our context. And uh, we do have notes in your bulletin if you're not familiar with that. We always have, well, most of the time, notes to follow along to. The destruction of cities and nations by Assyria is God's wrath against a godless people. And that's not just something that we can guess at. That's not something that we can just take uh, context and try to figure it out. But it's actually been revealed to us word for word the fact that the reason the Assyrians are able to have military conquest is because it is God's wrath on these nations. Not a serious wrath. That's kind of insignificant. It is God's wrath on these nations. And so I'll read that for you. This is Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. It says, Woe to Assyria. This is God speaking. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hand is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. Now, we could pause right there. But there we go. There we have it. So Assyria is a weapon that God is wielding to take wrath out on these godless nations. But it still says, woe to Assyria. He says, my wrath, I command them to take spoil, to seize plunder, to tread them down like mire in the streets. But he, Assyria, does not so intend. It wasn't his idea to be used by God. And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations. And so God uses his evil intentions for his divine, sovereign, good purposes. So we have here God using a wicked nation who wants to destroy people, but yet it is God's fury and wrath in his hand. How do those things possibly work together? And we've talked about this much, and this is just a reminder that this is where concurrence comes into play. And I have a little definition there from R.C. Sproul that God and human beings both act at the same time so that the Lord's plan is fulfilled and our choices are really and truly our own. That is concurrence, God working within mankind. We see this. These are just two really easy examples, Joseph and his brothers. Do you remember what was said? You planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. That's concurrence. That is, they did something evil, murderous, not good, but yet God intended it to bring about good. See, it was God's plan, but God was never charged with the evil. God did nothing evil. They did the evil, but yet it was God's plan. How does that work? Where God is not charged with evil, that's concurrence. And another one we see, this is very basic, is that uh, Jesus and his betrayal. The Son of Man must be betrayed, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed, right? So he must be betrayed, but yet the person who betrays him, woe to him. Just like woe to Assyria, even though you are my instrument of wrath, woe to you for the evil intentions of your heart. Concurrence. God makes a promise, though, to those in Jerusalem. When Assyria comes bearing God's wrath, do not be afraid, God says, my fury and anger will be redirected towards the Assyrians rather than you, so don't be afraid. I want to, I want to read that for you. That's Isaiah 10, verses 24 and 25. Now remember, we're in chapter 36. This is a previous prophecy. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed towards their destruction. Okay, so there we have it. So God is sending the Assyrians and all these nations. You saw it on the map. And now God's wrath has come, has come, has come all the way down to them over the years. And now is God's wrath going to be poured out on us too? And who will we seek to be delivered? How will we be delivered from this great army who is doing nothing but killing everyone in its path? Who will we seek for shelter and help? And so now we come to Isaiah chapter 36. Look at verse 1. This is the scenario. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Listen to this. All the fortified cities and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the... Okay, some of your Bibles are going to say something different here. Okay, the Rabshakeh or Rabshakeh or official or military official. Your Bible says something like that. So th this guy is a military official. Okay, the ESV translates it, the Rabshakeh, as if it's a position or a title. So that's what I'll be saying. 
The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the washer's field, and there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Okay, probably in our devotions, that would be like one you just kind of, okay, great, great historical detail here. Let's find something of spiritual significance already. Uh, so, uh, but there, there is a, a great deal to be worked through here. So Hezekiah uh, has been follow or has has come after a line of kings, obviously. But there are a few that we need to uh, review. So Isaiah begins with King Uzziah, and he says, in the year of Uzziah's death. You remember that? Isaiah chapter 6. So Uzziah was there. He reigned until 742, and then Jotham reigned until 732, and then we have Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. Um, Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father. Remember, Hezekiah is the king of Judah right now. So there is uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, versus Hezekiah, king of Judah. All right, these two guys are going at odds right now. Hezekiah's father was Ahaz. Ahaz was a horrible, wicked king. Some of the things that Ahaz did was he worshiped false gods. I mean, you could leave it at that, but he took it a step farther. He took gold and silver from the house of God, from the temple, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. He closed the temple, and he set up altars in high places, and as 2 Chronicles 28-24 says, in every corner of Jerusalem. So he closed the temple of God, this king of Judah, king of God's people, closes the temple, gives the gold to a foreign godless army, and sets up altars and high places in every corner of Jerusalem. That's this guy's father. But then Hezekiah takes over, and, and, and he starts to make things right. He was faithful. He was not perfect, but he was faithful. Hezekiah destroyed all the altars in the high places. He destroyed the bronze serpent of Moses. If you remember that, Moses was given it when all the people of Israel, when God sent poisonous snakes and was killing a bunch of people, they had to go to God, and God said, well, here, this, this, they gave him this uh, bronze serpent, and anybody who looked at the serpent was healed and lived. They had this thing, and they were worshiping it. So he broke it because it, wasn't, it became an idol. He restored the priesthood and temple worship, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. That's from 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7. Now, how do you think this grand king of Assyria, who every nation before him was bowing down to him, felt about this little tiny corner of the map saying, no, I will not? He didn't feel good about it, did he? And so as his fathers before him conquered nations, it was in his heart now to conquer the one who was being rebellious, and that is king of Judah. And so it says, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, by the way, this guy started reigning as king of Judah when he was 25, so he's only 39 years old. 39-year-old king of Judah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all of his fortified cities and took them. What is his confidence level right now? Probably pretty low. Uh, we are going to be destroyed, but, but didn't he have a promise from God? When the Syrians come against you and they raise their staff against you, do not be afraid because soon I will turn my wrath on him instead of you. Don't be afraid. You will not be destroyed. But when the army is at your door, things start to be tested, don't they? Isn't it easy from a distance to be faithful to God's promises, but when those things smack you in the face, all of a sudden your faith is truly and genuinely tested. Isn't that how it is? We see that the faithfulness of King Hezekiah is thrust into a furnace and is being tested by the fire, isn't it? Did God need to send the army so close to home, but did he do it on purpose? Did he do it with intention? Did he know what he was doing when the army got that close? Yes. Let's say this in your notes. A great application here is that God in his grace is not content to allow his people to rest in the comforts of life. Isn't that the case? Are we thankful for that? Eh, I don't know. Are we thankful for that? Yes, we should be, right? God in his grace is not content. God in his grace is not content to leave you comfortable in this life. So when your comforts in life are interrupted... That is God in his grace interrupting your comforts so that your faith and your dependence is not on men, is not on money, is not on powers, but is on God himself. Now imagine 
if God did not send us through the fire? How would your faith be today? In no comparison to what it is, right? Isn't it true that the richest times of faith are produced in the deepest times of distress? Maybe you're in distress today. Be encouraged. God puts you through the fire to increase your faith, and it is his grace on you. If he was not being a gracious and good God, he would keep trouble far from you so that you could just rely on yourself all day long. But he takes away the things you rely upon to force you to that point where you say, I have nothing left but to rely on God himself. What a mercy of God. What a grace of God in our life. So we should learn to not despise those times of distress, right? Remember 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. It says, in this you rejoice. Now, just remember that word rejoice. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So rejoice and grieve go together. Could it be that when God sends us into distress, we're to take joy in that situation, knowing that it was only God and his grace that sent us there? And it is God and his grace that will bring us out. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, is tested by fire. So that it may be found a result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what our God does for us. And perhaps, maybe, he's doing that for you even today. How long does that time last? We don't know. You come in and out of those seasons of life. And it could be, because we're not promised, that you may even, at the end of your life, be in a time of distress. But it could be that at the end of your life, you're in a time of rest and joy. If you find yourself in a time of rest and comfort and joy, the grace of God may be around the corner to test your faith. But we should rejoice in that, knowing that if necessary, we've been grieved so that our, our faith may be tested. This is a good God. This is a God who is not content to leave us in our comforts, but he wants our hearts to rely in him. And so here's what the king does. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he takes all the fortified cities of Judah. The threat is closing in. Will Hezekiah remember the promise of God? That's the question. Will they fear when the Assyrians come? Now, I want you to, uh, if you would, keep your, keep your finger or some kind of note or something in Isaiah 36, but flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, because what we find here are parallel accounts of this situation. We have, we have three, actually. Just, just like the Gospels, we have four kind of parallel accounts, but some include some information and some include others. We have the same thing happening here, whereas Isaiah has an account, but it doesn't have all the information, so we can look in other places for parallel accounts. One is in 2 Kings, one is in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 uh, and 8 is where I want you to look right this second, and then we're going to look uh, at more here in just a moment. Uh, 2 Chronicles 28 has a prayer, or excuse me, 32, has a prayer of Hezekiah and an encouragement to the people. So when the Assyrians get close, here's what he says to the people. 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria with all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. And with him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Great news. By the way, isn't that what we need when there are times of distress is for someone to come along and say, be strong, be courageous. Remember that the Lord is the one on your side. For though he has an arm of flesh that can bring trouble, our God is not a flesh. There is far more with us than with him. Just remember, but we need to have faith because it's not of sight, it's of faith. It's easy for a person to say when the day of testing comes that they will stand strong. Isn't that easy for you to say? When that day of testing comes, I will, I know. Listen, if that, how often do we look at Old Testament stories and we say, man, if that were me, I never would have done that. But, but you don't really know until that thing knocks on your door. Your door. God's people must 
find their strength in the Lord in the day of their distress. That's in your notes. God's people must find their strength in the Lord in the day of their distress. As he comes and he encourages them, he says, be strong, be courageous. Why? Because we've trained for this day. Well, no, that's not why. Because we have money, we have horses, we have weapons. By the way, they did prepare weapons. They prepared shields and swords. And they fortified their cities. They were prepared, but they said, that's, that's not why we have reason to have confidence. Why have confidence? Because the Lord our God is with us. Your confidence does not come from your preparation or your strength or your wisdom or your faithfulness. That is not your strength in this life. That is not your confidence. You are not smart enough, if no one's ever told you that. You are not faithful enough. You are not strong enough. But God is. Do not have faith in yourself in the day of distress. Have faith in your God on the day of distress. Faith in yourself. You are going to let yourself down. We have faith in our God. He is the only one who can never let us down. We have faith in him. Just be reminded, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. Are, are you prepared for that? Have you uh, prepared to wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Or do you think that your threat is just worldly? That's why you think you can stand. If you see your threat and your enemy as of this earth, you think you can handle it. But what we don't realize and what we forget is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are wrestling against spiritual forces of evil. And you cannot, you cannot beat them. But you can be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Having done everything to stand firm, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. You can take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is what we're called to in the day of our distress. It says nothing of worldly preparation. It says nothing. But it says everything about spiritual preparation so that we may be strong in the Lord. How do we do that? By spiritual discipline. That's right. Because when the evil day comes and it's around the corner, that you may have done all to stand. But maybe that evil day came and you were not ready. You were not doing everything you could to stand. And so what happens? You fall on your face. And even though you may have seen earthly success, your spirit has fallen. And your face has fallen and your faith is wavering. Has that ever been the case for you? I'm seeing great success in the world. My faith, not so much. So the king comes, and he is ready to drive out Jerusalem. But before he does, he takes on a particular city. And we read that in our text. It says that he came. Uh, let me read it for you. It says in verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah. From where? From another city. What city? The city that they just named is Lachish. You can see it on the map here. It's that yellow dot. That is Lachish, and uh, I believe in Hebrew it's pronounced Lachish, but I'm not, uh, I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm going to say Lachish. Uh, this is what the city looks like today in ruins. You can see it's up on a hill. You can see where the, the walls used to be of the city. And we look at this old map here that was drawn, and you can see it was a double-walled city and it had much fortification, this was the second greatest city in all of Judah. It was the economic powerhouse of the people of Judah. It, this was where everything really happened outside of Jerusalem. It was about 40 miles away from Jerusalem, very close, um, but uh, it had about 10,000 people or so, uh, as the guess is. But here's what's happening. 
the king of Assyria redirected his path around Jerusalem and came to Lachish first. And then as they were there seizing this city, he sent officials to Jerusalem. Why might he do that? He wants to mess with their head. Isn't that what anybody in war does? You want to mess with people's head. You want to get inside their head. And that's exactly what he did. He's destroying Lachish. And now he sends his officials to Jerusalem and say, listen, you have nothing left. Your greatest city, we've already taken it. It's down. It's gone. You are next. Now he's shaking in his boots. Before we get to that, let's just learn a little bit about this King Sennacherib. In the year 1845, there was an excavation of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. And, uh, and they found in the palace room, they found these large, like nine foot by 40 foot stone tablets that had reliefs on them or etchings in them. And this is a close up of one of those. And uh, you can see here, there's a throne and there's people waving him with palm branches. And, and you may not be able to see, but there's actually a rectangular inscription above that. And um, it reads, this is great, you'll like this. Sennacherib, king of the universe, king of Assyria, sits on a throne and the spoils of Lachish are paraded before him. Th this, this relief was made uh, in the late 600s, just a few years after they took this and now they're remembering that moment. And this is in the palace room. This was for him to sit and look at and remember his great victories. The king of the universe. Who would be so bold as to use a title like that? But he did. He thought he was everything. Second Chronicles 32 says, After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all of his forces, he sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, Judah, to all the people who were in Jerusalem. Now, there's another story here that's, that's left out of our Isaiah 36 passage. And so I'd like for you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to read a, a little portion here because what we see is Hezekiah's initial response. What we have in Isaiah 36 is his final response. But there was an initial response that's significant. Here is what King Hezekiah does first. As Sennacherib is invading Lachish, the city that is right next to them, as he sees that all the fortified cities are coming down, Hezekiah sends a message to the king of Assyria as he's besieging Lachish. And here's what he says. This is 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. In the 14th year, King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, if you remember, that is exactly word for word, Isaiah 36, verse 1. Word for word. Verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, Listen to what Hezekiah said. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required king Hezekiah 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped gold from the doors of the temple and from the doorpost. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, overlaid it, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Faith, faithlessness in the moment. He had a weakness there, didn't he? If I can just pay him off, maybe he'll leave. Is that what the Lord had promised? And you think, sometimes there are situations in our life where you think, well, God has promised this, but has he promised it without my workings in it? So sometimes we do things and we say, I, I know the Lord has promised and I have faith in that and I'm just going to do what I think is best, right? And I know I'm going to trust the Lord for the outcome. Uh, it could be a situation like that, or it could be that he said, uh, the threat has become real. Uh, I need to start taking things into my own hands. Uh, the Lord is clearly not delivering us, but maybe his wrath is remaining on us. But maybe we can postpone that wrath if we just pay off this king and he goes somewhere else. So they pay him off, and the bad news is, is that they come anyway, such as a godless king would do. Okay, so we move on in Isaiah 36. We're going to pick up the pace with our text just a little bit. Isaiah chapter 36, verses 4 through 10. So remember now, Lachish is being destroyed as we're speaking, and he sends officials over to Hezekiah. Hezekiah doesn't meet the officials himself. He sends his own officials. So what we have is a meeting of two groups of officials, the officials of Judah and the officials of Assyria, and they start to have conversation, and here is what the Rabshakeh says 
to Hezekiah's people in verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy for power, for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, it is, not, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall not worship before this altar? Pause right there. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because no, it was not the altars to, the, to God that he tore down. What, what altars did he tear down? The false altars, the false gods in the high places. He thought he knew. He thought he knew exactly what was going on here, but he had some kind of misinformation there. He didn't understand. So the answer to that is no, uh, he didn't. Verse 9. How then can you repulse, that is, drive back a single captain from a man, from among the least of my servants, when you trust in Egypt and, uh, for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up and destroy this land, go up to this land and destroy it. So he tries to say, you don't trust in God, you trust in Egypt. And then he changes his argument and he says, well, maybe you do trust in God. But didn't you tear down all his altars and you don't want to worship him anymore? Because he's, he's not real. And then he changes his argument again and he says, oh, by the way, your God told me to come destroy you. So he is not consistent, first of all, in his threats. But his threats are, are real against the people. What confidence do you have to stand against us? When the enemy comes against us, that question will be asked. What confidence do you have that you're going to make it through this? Who's going to come along and help you? You can't defeat us on your own. You trust in Egypt. People only get hurt trusting in them. It says something about 2,000 horses there. He says, by the way, I'll give you 2,000 horses. We have, we have 2,000 horses to spare. Uh, we'll give them to you, but you're still not going to be able to stand against us because you can't do it on your own. Okay, so it continues on. Isaiah 36, 11 and 12. So that was his threat. And then the response, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Okay, so get this picture is that they have come out to meet uh, the officials and um, they start speaking to them in Hebrew, their language. So these guys were very intelligent, first of all. But there are people up on the walls of Jerusalem, and they are warriors, people, or maybe more crowds of people came just to see the scene of what was going on. And they were talking in Hebrew, so all the people around watching could understand. And they said, hey, hey, can you talk to us in Aramaic? We know Aramaic. Talk to us in your language so that no one else around can understand what's being said because you're scaring the people. Just talk to us, would you? We can understand you. But the Rabshakeh said, verse 12, uh, his, his response is a little abrasive. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Now remember they were at the conduit at the washer's field and they were about to cut off their water supply and they had shut them up. In fact, it says the, uh, uh, the king of Assyria writes down in his chronicles that he shut up the king of Judah as a bird in a cage. That's what he says. You can't get out. No one can go in. No one can come out. We're cutting off your water supply. That's what they're referencing there. You're going to die one way or the other. Very soon, we will have threats on our way of life what we do, why we do it. And sometimes we see physical priorities as more important than spiritual priorities, don't we? But we need to remember this, that even in the midst of tragedy and distress, the kingdom of God must remain the priority. It has to. It has to at all costs. The kingdom of God is primary. But what if someone's trying to take my life? What? If it comes down to either your life or the kingdom of God, we can't compromise the kingdom of God, but we can compromise our physical life. 
But for most of us in this room, that's not the threat, is it? It's, it's something else. Yeah, but that job, even though I wouldn't agree with it morally, uh, I will be paid a lot more. And don't you know that I'll be able to pay off my, uh, my debts if I do that? Isn't that a godly thing, pay off my debts? But yet I'll be working for something that, that goes against God? And so we have to make these judgment calls. Remember in our judgment calls, in our distress, the kingdom of God is our priority always, and it must be. It's not your happiness. It's not your comfort that's priority. It is the kingdom of God that is priority. Remember Matthew 6, 31 and 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? By the way, that's exactly what they were saying. Well, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so what's his reply to that? You know it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's more important, physical well-being or spiritual well-being? And sometimes life comes at the cost of physical well-being for the sake of spiritual well-being. Are you ready to make that decision? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's continue on in our story. Isaiah 36, verses 13 through 22. The Rabshakeh, in response, after they said, Will you please speak to us in Aramaic instead of Hebrew? Here's what he said. He called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, king of Assyria. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me, come out to me. Each one of you will eat of his own vine and of his own fig tree, and each of you will drink water of his own cistern. Until I come and I take you away to a land of your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he's already promising. We, we do intend, by the way, to lead you away from here. We're taking your land. But you'll be comfortable where we take you. Don't worry. You'll be all right. And then verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the, uh, this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seravaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods have delivered their, their land out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So this is his threat. This is where we're going to focus our attention in the last couple of minutes. This is the threat. He says... Hear my voice, I am the great king, as he calls himself, the great king of the universe. And he says, if you want to live, come make peace with me. And I will give you all your heart desires. You'll have all this great abundance. And you'll be able to eat all these things. And you'll be able to drink all these delicacies. You'll be comfortable. You'll have a nice life. But if you don't come out to make peace with me, you will surely die. This is his threat. The enemy seeks to deceive and to destroy the people of God. That's the enemy's goal. That's their objective. I want you to notice a couple of things in the text. First, he discredits true words and he replaces them with false words. He discredits the truth and replaces it with a lie. And isn't that what the enemy does? Here's what he says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. Now, was Hezekiah promising that he was going to be able to deliver them, first of all? No, he was promising that the Lord was going to deliver them. So that's, he's already playing with the words. Verse 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver us, saying that this city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah was saying, remember the promises of God. Remember that the Lord said, we will be delivered. Remember what God said about the Assyrians coming on us. And he says, don't let Hezekiah fool you. Here we are at your door. Here in just a second, we're going to take you down. Don't let Hezekiah fool you. 
has any other land escaped our hand? And they have to look around and say, no, no one else has been able to escape. How are we going to escape? How will we be delivered? And then second, he discredits the true Savior, and he replaces them with a false Savior. You see how he does that? He says, come out and make your peace with me. Now, who do, who do we really need to make peace with in order to be delivered? We need to make peace with our God in order to be delivered, right? But he said, no, 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 no. Forget, forget that. You need to make peace with me, for I am your deliverer. I have the power both of life and death. Come and make peace with me. Says the king of the universe. Yes, says the true king of the universe. Verse 18, beware. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. I want to remind you of just three passages here to help us this morning. Colossians 2.8. Remember, we're talking about how the enemy works here. The enemy seeks to deceive and to destroy. Is that enemy working against you today? If you wonder about that, then you are already in his hand. The enemy is seeking around to get you. Make no mistake about that. You remember, first of all, before I get to that passage, Ephesians 6, it says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle against cosmic powers and evil forces. Does that sound very present tense to you? That's a current battle that we're in today. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. One way that deceit creeps into us and into the church is by deceitful lies. There is a trend in many churches, and particularly America, that doctrine is not important. Let's have enough with all the Bible study time and theology and deep matters. Let's just feel better about ourselves already. Let's just be happy. Forget about all the bad stuff. Let's just come to church and have a great, exciting, joyful, you know, emotional ride. Got to have a fog machine to do that, though. And then, there is the lie. There is the lie. The less you know about your God, the better for the enemy. Because the more we know about our God, the stronger we will be. Seek him out. Know his word. Do not despise teaching. Do not despise doctrine. Know your God. Our God is so much more than an emotional ride. He is our everything, and he is worthy of our thoughts, of our devotion, of our study, of our time. He is worthy. Amen. Ephesians 4, 20 and 22. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, though it is corrupt through deceitful desires. We need to remember that the desires that creep in are deceitful desires. You have dwelling in you Deceitful desires that are ready and willing and excited to come out because that is your old self. And so often we want to go back to that old self that is mastered by sin. But we have been set free from sin. We've been set free from that master. And so now all those deceitful desires need to be pushed away by the Spirit of God and replaced with what? That's the problem. What are we replacing those deceits with if we do not have solid biblical truth? It's being replaced with whatever you want to replace it with. We need the Word of God. We need teaching. We need doctrine. We need to know the mind of God. 
we need to know the character of God. Replace those deceitful desires with what is true. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, you receive it. Or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. How can it be? Or could it be? That when something contrary to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ creeps in, we put up with it readily enough. We accept it, whatever it is, oh, okay, sure, I don't know any different. That sounds right. I remember when I was a young Christian, I, I, I was at Starbucks, and, uh, and a woman came over to me because I was sitting there reading my Bible, and she came over and she said, do you understand what you're reading there? I have no idea what my response was to that. I hope the answer was no, because, you know... Not, all, not always. No, I'm, I'm seeking to know what I'm reading, right? I'm seeking to understand. Um, but she came and she said, let me tell you something. And she began to tell me all these different things about what the end of the world will be like and who will be saved and who will not be saved and who God really is. And I said, huh, okay, I've never heard that before, but that, I mean, it sounds right, Okay. And it was Jehovah's Witness. I didn't know. I had no idea. I had no clue that what was creeping into my thoughts was deceit. Because I didn't know any better. You know what I needed in that moment? I needed a group of people around me who were theologically astute enough to say, that is a lie. Do not believe that. And to pull me back in lovingly and to teach me what is right. That's what you need to do to the person next to you. We need to know our God. If we do not know him, we will not know enough to rest and place our trust in him. You need to know him. We need to not be deceived by the world. Well, now, why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about all these armies and everything. Why, why are we talking? Because this is the enemy. This is the enemy working today. Your enemy is at the door. What are you trusting in? You say, well, I trust in the Lord. Yeah, tell me about your Lord. Who is he? What is he like? What does he believe about this? What has he said about that? If you say, well, I, well, I don't really know about him much, but I know that I trust in him. What kind of answer is that? We need to seek out pure devotion to Christ. And it has much to do with who we understand our God and Savior to be. Now, we'll give him credit. I'm going to read the last uh, two verses here. Uh, this is verses 21 and 22. It says, but they were silent. Okay, so their, their response was silence. Uh, when uh, the Rabshakeh came and said all this crazy stuff, they didn't say anything in return. Now, they had every right to bring him down, right? What you're saying is lies, and we know it. You're deceiving us. You're saying don't be deceived, but you're the one deceiving us. He says they did not answer him a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. So Hezekiah said no matter what they say, don't give a response. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and they told him of the words of the Rabshakeh. Why were their clothes torn? Because they were grieving. The threat became real. What are we going to do? We will finish the story next week. We will... Uh, I, I want us to end with this thought, though, because he got one thing right. Only peace with the king of the universe will deliver you from certain death. He got that right. It's just it was the wrong king he was talking about. If you're seeking for peace in something else this morning, if your soul is in distress, please know 
the only source of comfort comes from our God in Jesus Christ. That is it. There is nothing else. There is nothing greater. There is nothing better. There is nothing. We need to drop everything, all of our preferences, all of our stylistic choices that seem so good to us, or all of our knowledge that we like, or the things that we like to do or don't like to do. Don't you realize that all these things are meant for division? I like this. You like this. Well, we can't get along. But we are to be those who find unity in what? Our God and His Word and His promises by His Spirit. This is Christian unity. We are meant to be diverse and yet unified. Why? Because together we stand against the schemes of the devil. And when I see you falling into a snare of the devil, do you know what I'm going to do? I hope is I'm going to run after you and pull you out of the trap. Or I'm going to say, don't step in that trap. I stepped in it three years ago. Do not get there. Be prepared. The enemy is around the corner. But know this. Romans 8.28 promise is good. Romans 8.29 is what makes it great. Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for their good. We know that one. You got it probably under your refrigerator, right? Verse 29 says, what? That we might become more like Him. Did you know that all these things work towards one good, and that good is sanctification, maturity in Christ? not towards worldly comfort, because is our God content to leave you in worldly comfort? No, he wants a sanctified believer. That's what he wants. And it may take, for a time, grieving through trials and distress. But in your grieving and your trials and distress, you have one Savior and one God. Be ready to leave all else on the floor, because what is most of my concern is the kingdom of God, his righteousness. That's what I'm seeking after. I'm not seeking after comforts. I'm not seeking after pleasure. I'm not seeking after what I want. I'm laying all that down. What I want is his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray together.